Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yo, technology, what is it all about? This is a shift of our lifetime, right? These come along every 30, 40 years. And when these shifts happen, you have the chance to build something that impacts life for every person on the planet. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, and we have a double whammy for you today. First up, we're going to dive into the roiling, frothy waters of NFTs. That's right, non-fungible tokens, these digital assets, collectibles, whatever you want to call them. That have suddenly become, you know, a thing. Uh, of course, the biggest NFT deal was the sale of uh, for $69 million of a kind of digital collage by the artist people. But that is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, there's a ton going on in this world. And so to help decode what is happening, how this all got started, and where it's going next, we have on Nikhil Viswanathan, who is the co-founder of Alchemy, which you can think of as kind of like operating system for the ethereum blockchain which is kind of the technological rails upon which every major nft marketplace every deal you've heard about is happening so whether that's the two hundred thousand dollars someone paid for a lebron james highlight to seven million dollars for a single crypto punk which is kind of like a digital image of a little blue alien guy smoking a pipe it's 2021 everybody crazy times and the kill will help make sense of it all and then after that we're going to bring on raj chowdhury who is a professor at the harvard business school and i want to bring him on to talk about the return to work uh he's been studying this work from anywhere idea for years before the pandemic struck and now his companies from facebook to uber are starting to open their offices again um you know as vaccines roll out all these companies are looking at okay we're going back to work quote unquote what does that look like I wanted to have him on to talk about the best way for these companies to do that, to handle this new world where people have decided, you know, I quite like not having to go to the office every day. Um, so we talked to him about what works, what doesn't, and what awaits us. And spoiler alert, it's the end of the cubicle as we know it. But now, before we do that, let's get to the wacky world of NFTs with Nikhil Viswanathan, the co-founder of Alchemy, the company right at the heart of the madness. 
Enjoy. So yeah, so my first question is very basic. What the hell is happening? What is going on? Because right before we got on, uh, I was just kind of doing some more research, reading about a LeBron James highlight that sold for $208,000. And of course, everybody knows about the Beeple, whatever you want to call it, collage, work of art that sold for $69 million. All of this stuff seems to be happening like all of a sudden. And everybody's kind of, you know, I'll speak for myself, kind of scratching their heads and be like, what, what, what is this? How, what is happening here? Yeah, it's a super exciting time. What we're actually seeing with NFTs is just one application of blockchain um, and cryptocurrency. I think one of the best ways to think about this is when you look at the big shifts in technology over the last you know, 50 years, you see first there was the computer, then there was yeah. the internet, and now there's blockchain. And each of these is a tectonic shift in its own right. And what you notice when, you know, when the internet came along is you started seeing social networks and you started seeing food delivery and you started seeing, you know, better communication, whether that's through email or instant messenger or FaceTime or whatever it is. And NFTs is just one application of blockchain technology. It's the first one that has reached mass market adoption beyond the trading of cryptocurrencies. It's like the first one that normal people can associate with. And I think that that is why it's so exciting because suddenly everyone realizes, wow, this kind of new blockchain technology thing has incredible potential. And that is the first of many things that were yet to come. Right. And do you have, and this is probably an unfair question, but do you have a sense of why now? Because I've, I was living in London from, I'm from the Bay Area originally, lived overseas for 15 years, moved back in 2016. And everybody was talking about blockchain then. Yeah. And Bitcoin then. And, you know, you had that first really big spike in Bitcoin. I think it was 2017-ish. Yep. And everybody got really excited. And then it kind of dropped back down and everybody forgot about it again. But people have been talking about this, it feels like, for a long time. And then all of a sudden you have this, like, blossoming of just yeah. kind of feels like a mania. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you actually look at it from the technical aspect, it makes total sense why this is happening now. So mapping the chronology of crypto and blockchain what you see is 2009, the Bitcoin white paper came out, right? And that was kind of like a seminal event where this new technology has been invented. But obviously, you know, it takes a while to commercialize that technology and make something happen. Then in 2017, there was kind of like a big next shift where Ethereum really started taking off. And you can think of Bitcoin as digital money that people are sending back and forth. And you can think of Ethereum as a new building block for building types of applications that can exchange value. And let, let me break that down a little bit. When you think about the big shifts, like we talked about the computer, the internet, the blockchain, each one of them brings a new fundamental paradigm. So the computer brought this new building block. And that building block is that machines can follow human instructions and execute those instructions. The internet comes along and says, okay, we're going to give machines this new capability. The capability is that machines can talk to each other and exchange information. And that was never possible before, right? And, and then blockchain comes along and says, okay, in addition to exchanging information, machines can exchange value. And that was really the key innovation that happened. And when you think about the, the other kind of bigger shifts we'd see in technology, things like artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence is really just a combination of the first two, computer and internet. It's machines following instructions and machines exchanging information. So this is a new fundamental paradigm shift. And the reason that this happened now is... When you, when you look at the internet or computers, right, the internet was actually developed, I believe, 
in around 1965 by DARPA. Um, and they, it took years and years, only until the 90s did it really start taking off in kind of normal, normal life. What you're seeing now is that time frame is extremely compressed because we didn't have the internet when we were building the internet, right? If we had the internet to build the internet, it would have gone a lot faster. So when you look at Ethereum really starting to take off and this new building block that you can, you can use to build applications that exchange value, what happens is, you know, it took several years for the technology to get good enough, the excitement to get there, the products to be built. So I think looking, it's been roughly a three, three-ish year time frame since, it, since Ethereum took off, maybe call it three and a half, four. And it now is a time when the technology has advanced to the time, to the perspective when you can deliver great user experiences, which weren't possible before. And so you started Alchemy in 2017, yes, correct? Yes, in 2017. Why? What, what problem were you solving? Yeah. So it's interesting because before this, my co-founder and I, we actually met at Stanford. We were teaching assistants for the database class. And it was funny because when you're a teaching assistant, it's basically the best job in the world. You get paid to do, you get paid to like teach people how to learn, which was really fun. And it was very little work. Uh, we worked hard, but it was, you get way overpaid as a teaching assistant. That normally you have like a hundred students in your class. That quarter at Stanford, they said, let's try this new online learning thing. And instead of having a hundred students, we had a hundred thousand students. That was the most I've ever worked as a TA. It was outrageous. We, we stayed, we pulled all nighters. We worked insanely hard because there's a hundred thousand students in the class. The next quarter that became Coursera. So Joe and I were kind of the first unplayed, unpaid employees of Coursera. I mean, we got paid, didn't get equity or anything, but th- yeah, yeah. after that, we had spent spent many years building consumer products. We actually built a ton of different products. We wanted to make it feel like you lived with your friends. And, you know, it was many, many, many years of building products. Nothing was working. Suddenly, we built this one app. We thought no one would use it. Ends up being the number one on the app store. You know, millions of people around the world. Front page New York Times. I was never forgive them to the day for putting a terrible photo of me on the front page. Um, but <laughs> what's that? What was the app? It was called Down to Lunch. So the idea was that we had moved to San Francisco and we missed all our friends and we wanted to make it easy for you to hang out with your friends. So we said, one day we we're like, what if we could just press a button and it would text all our friends to see who wants to hang out? Again, we thought right. no one would do use it. We put our phone number in there. That's how little we thought anyone would use it. We ended up breaking iMessage because we started getting tens of thousands of text, text messages a day. So yeah, it was, it was a really exciting time. We were working on that. Really what it came down to for us and why we got interested in crypto and blockchain was it was this exact paradigm that I just that I just kind of laid out where we had seen the big shifts in technology and suddenly we realized when you have this big shift, the, you know, this is a shift of our lifetime, right? These come along every 30, 40 years. And when these shifts happen, you have the chance to build something that impacts life for every person on the planet, right? An Amazon, a Google, or a Microsoft, um, an Apple, right? For the computing eras. Like, and, you know, many of our investors had started Amazon, and, sorry, not Amazon, uh, Yahoo and PayPal, LinkedIn, and we and, and had kind of been one of our investors, the chairman of board of Google, and kind of seeing those stories had been really exciting for us because we said, we have a chance to build this. So what are you building? Good, good question. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Because obviously there's the Ethereum blockchain, which in the past someone described it to me like, you know, they... They talk about Bitcoin as a calculator. Ethereum is kind of like a computer in terms of the difference in capabilities and the the things you can do with it. I don't know if you agree with that analogy or not, but that obviously has already existed. So what are you doing? So I think I think the way to think about this is whenever you have a new platform like the computer, the internet, or blockchain, you actually have this kind of three layer sandwich that like pops up in in every industry. You have this. So for the computer. 
at the bottom layer, what you have is like the physical components, right? Your RAM, your CPU, your hard drive, like the actual pieces of hardware that make a computer run. But what is a computer to us today? It's, you know, Microsoft Excel, Google Chrome, Word, like these kind of applications. You need the applications for normal people like us to use stuff, right? So the question is, how do you make those applications for the underlying hardware? And it turns out that it's really difficult to do unless you have this thing called the operating system, right? And what the operating system does, like Windows or Mac OS, right, or iPhone OS, it hides all the complexity of the stuff underneath, and it makes it possible for people to build applications, right? And what it turns out is, then you have this three-layer stack. At the bottom, you have the hardware, and then, or the protocol layer, that, which is the computer, it's your RAM, your CPU, your hard drive. And in the middle layer, you have the Windows and Mac OS, and on, the, on top of that, you know, the applications are built. And with the internet, you see a very similar thing. You have HTTP, FTP, SMTP, kind of the core. These, these are the terms for the core protocols that run the web. Yeah. And what is the web today? It's Facebook, it's YouTube, it's Google, right? But there's that middle layer, and that middle layer is Amazon Web Services. Amazon Web Services, which it's interesting because Amazon Web Services actually makes more money for Amazon than their entire shopping business, right? Yeah. And, and what that does is that powers anytime you use Uber or Pinterest or Dropbox or, you know, or Netflix or Airbnb, you're actually using Amazon underneath the hood. And we actually do the same thing for blockchain. So there's the, the, the protocols for blockchain are Ethereum, Bitcoin, Flow, like these different chains. And, you know, there's, there's applications built on top. So uh, NBA Top Shot or, you know, OpenSea or Maker's Place or, the, or, you know, anyone from like a Coinbase, right? Or Walmart and PricewaterhouseCoopers, all these different people are building applications. Alchemy is that kind of invisible layer that you don't think about that powers all these applications. So are you kind of like the operating system for blockchain? Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, the crazy thing to think about is when we talk about this, platforms, the, the kind of developer platform layer, which is the category that the operating system or AWS holds, is one tiny piece of one small industry, right? One small piece of computing or internet or blockchain. And that's one small piece of technology. And that's one small piece of, you know, all the industries in the world. There's real estate, there's finance, there's other industries, Right. If you look at the four most valuable companies in the world, four of the five, it's like number one, it's like Apple, then Amazon, and then uh, then it's actually like Saudi Aramco, and then and then it's uh, Microsoft, right? Like three of the four most valuable companies in the world are developer platforms, and that kind of shows you like how impactful this is. So the really exciting thing here is as we see blockchain grow, and you know we've seen insane growth in Alchemy over the last month, the last three months. As we see this grow, we have the chance to build something really impactful for the world. And it's really exciting because, you know, today we power uh, $25 billion of transactions for like 100, uh, I, I don't know if these numbers are public, but many, many tens of millions of people around the world in every country in the world. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really exciting time. And what would that have been? What would those numbers have been three months ago? Um, I think there's two things to tease out here. One is how quickly Alchemy's grown and one is how quickly the industry has grown. Yeah. I would say it's safe to say it's in order like two to three X growth in the industry over the last uh, three months. Just in terms of value of transactions that are happening. Just what we're seeing seeing on our, our network. It's very unscientific numbers. That's like the back, yeah. <laughs> the back of the napkin, yeah. me thinking, but probably something of that order of magnitude. How much of that is just the Beeple sale? <laughs> um, a small a, a small percentage, right? Um, and it's interesting because the uh, Beeple sale, because it was done through Christie's, is not even counted in that twenty five billion number. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I think our latest number as of January was uh, fifteen billion, 
So we, so yeah, okay. So call it like roughly like a two X since, since January. Right. Um, yeah. So the, the other thing to note is like, you know, the Beeple sale was done on Alchemy. That was powered by Alchemy, but the, the dollar value was done uh, off the blockchain. So it was basically, or depending on, depending how you do it, basically the short answer, it's not accounted for in, in that total transaction volume. Right, right. And how big are you guys? I mean, how many people are you and what is what is happening at the company itself? Yeah, we've been growing really, really, really fast. I can't say right now, but we have some really exciting announcements uh, coming out in the next couple of weeks, which I'm happy to have happy to share. But we have grown the team in terms of alchemy. We've more than 10x our revenue in the last month and a half, um, which has been outrageous. And I don't think I've said that publicly yet. And the in, in terms of team, we're we will success the team this year. So it's been it's been very very exciting for us. So how many how many people will that be by the end of this year ish? Uh, we'll be seventy five by the end of this year. Right. Gotcha. When you started working on this, this kind of this idea of becoming an operating system for blockchain, did you think that it would be NFTs that would be the kind of the first, let's call it the quote unquote killer app that really takes off? You know, I have to admit, I definitely did not think it would be NFTs. <laughs> so this is a funny story. Our very first customer ever, ever, literally user number one on Alchemy was this guy, Matt Hall. And he had this side project and he was like, yo, man, can I use you guys? I really need this. And we're like, sure. I looked at his website. I was like, oh, you know, it's just a little side project. No one's going to care about this thing. But whatever. It's our first user. We just need someone mm -hmm. who can test it out, all this stuff. That's now CryptoPunks. Like that was CryptoPunks, the, the side project, you know. And those have sold, I, I don't know the exact number, but it's in the tens of millions of dollars. If not, I think it's actually above $100 million, like in terms of things. That's one of the kind of the, the OG NFT. It's like the very, very first NFT, like, you know individual crypto punks have sold for $7 million, right? So it's, it's honestly, Joe and I are so excited. My co-founder and I are so excited for him. And it's so cool to see someone who's worked on it for so long do really well. And we've been, you know, cheering for him throughout the journey. So yeah, and just for people who don't know, crypto punks are basically like these funny looking digital avatars that actually look quite, they're quite basic, but they're kind of funny. But it's like dudes with mohawks and sunglasses and tattoos, basically. Yeah, it's this cool idea. They made 10,000 of these characters and they're like, hey, you know, these will be valuable someday. And it's kind of like Pokemon cards or like some kind of collectible art. And they've blown up and it's kind of one of the premier NFT things now. It's funny. My parents are moving and they were up a couple weekends ago and they brought up a bunch of my stuff from when I was a kid. <laughs> You might know where I'm going with this. And it was boxes of baseball cards. I love it. I spent so much of my childhood collecting baseball cards, putting them in their little sleeves, you know, making oh, sure so they're good. mint, all that kind of stuff. And now I'm going through it and I was like, there was a time where I was like, these are going to be worth a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And now most of them are just fodder. You know, I could use them as kindling. <laughs> um, I do have some that are like good, but like, you know, there was a time when like, you know, a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, for example, is worth a lot of money. But the one I have now, I think is worth maybe a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. And you know, I'm 44 now, so that's like a 30-year return on investment. I mean, I guess it's a, I guess it's okay. <laughs> it's not super exciting. Oh, um, but do you see I mean, it feels like just where we are also in the economic cycle that the NFTs are also riding this wave of just kind of mania that's, you know, that has the stock markets going all over the place throughout, you know, things are at record highs all over the place, post-pandemic, et cetera, that it feels like at some point 
things are going to come crashing back to earth? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And actually, funny aside, I I collected everything growing up: rocks, pogs, stamps, coins, Pokemon cards, ba- basketball cards, baseball cards, literally mm. everything. I even collected like tags for my clothes. I don't even know if that was a collection, but I, I used to keep that. Did you? You said you collected rocks. I did collect rocks. I had a bunch of different rocks. Um, so on different, like, like just rocks, you're walking down the street, you pick up a rock and no, like, this was, is a keeper. No, it was, <laughs> I think I'm sure I did that. Uh, I, I'm sure I did that, but I also collected like special type of rock. We go on like boy scout camping trips and we find different rocks and I would even buy, right. buy different, like, like crystals and these kind of things. It was funny because my freshman roommate at Stanford was this guy, hilarious guy. We're still like, we still like text every day. Uh, Robin Lopez, he plays basketball for the Washington Wizards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, seven feet tall, three inches of hair. So we were freshman roommates and, you know, I'm just this kid from like small town Texas. And I remember freshman year, I was like, huh, we got along super well, but I was always curious like how they did room assignments. And then one day I was like the biggest, biggest like pack rat ever. So I would never throw anything away. So I had this like broken rubber band. I had this rubber band and it broke. It was just like a a rubber band from a newspaper. It was really dirty. It was old. And I still remember, I'm like, oh, I should throw it away. But like, I shouldn't, I don't know, I should throw it away. And I turn around to Robin, I'm like, hey, Robin, do you want this? And he's like, stretch, he's like, oh, cool, thanks, bro. Like, opens his drawer of crap and, like, throws it in there. And, like, Robin's actually a huge collector. Like, he, <laughs> he has this, like, warehouse full of, like, Disney gear. And so, anyway, so now I was like, this is why we're roommates. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, I think the interesting thing about, let, let me kind of, like, lay out, like, what NFTs are and why. I've been, I've been, I've given this talk to a few people. Um, I was planning on writing an article about it. But I think the way to think about it is, Okay, first, and, and I'll lay out like why they're valuable and how I think that it'll evolve in the future. What the heck is an NFT? Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to think about it is it's something that you can collect, but you can collect it online and prove that you own it. Because before online, you were never able to, like if I have an image, anybody could just copy the image, right? Like what, why would I, like how could I say it's mine? But with the blockchain, you have this new thing that was possible where you can say, I own this image, right? It's kind of like, think if you have the Mona Lisa. Anybody can go copy it and make a copy of it. But there's like some art inspector, art critic that's like, yo, this is the original. And it's really valuable because of that. And the blockchain does that for NFTs. It says like, hey, this is the original one. So it's really valuable. There's kind of three reasons why NFTs matter a lot in terms of cultural psychology and like kind of human psychology. Number one collection, which we just talked about, the idea of collecting is a very inbuilt human behavior. And it's been there for centuries. You know, like we talked about, you and I collected uh, in, through human history, like people have collected things. That's kind of like a no brainer. I think, I don't think that's controversial. I think, yeah, I think everybody understands that. that. Yeah. The second thing is digital goods are a real thing. And let me, let me explain this. Cause I think this is something that especially people like, you know, my generation and older are still trying to kind of wrap their heads around. Yeah. Well, because for example, like the LeBron James highlight that sold for $200,000. Yeah. You know, the argument is I can go on YouTube right now and watch that highlight. Yeah. Why would anybody pay 200 grand, 200 grand to quote unquote own yeah. that highlight? It's interesting because this is kind of a more philosophical question. Why do you buy nice clothes? Why do you buy fancy art? Like these kind of things, right? It's not because the actual material, you don't go buy, I don't wear designer brands, so I don't even know what designer, you don't go buy like, uh, what's Gucci. It? What's that? Gucci. There you go. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I, Let me help you out there. You, you don't go buy Gucci or Prada because you're like, oh, this material is worth thousands of dollars, right? You buy it for the status symbol and for the ego and for how it makes you feel and for what 
what you get out of owning a brand like that, right? Of what people perceive you as. And it's same thing with art. Like, why do you buy fancy art? It's like you buy it because of you, you're able to show it off to other people, right? And it makes you feel good. And then the, the question is, who can you show it off to, right? You can, you can show it off to anybody who sees you in person or enters your house, right? And, and to see your art. The thing is, in the digital world, who can you show it off to? You can show it off to anybody, right? It's like, why is Instagram posting something on Instagram way better than having a photo in your house? Because you can brag to the entire world, not just the people, the 10 people who come to your house like that month, right? So I think when you think about digital, digital goods, this is a, a phenomenon that especially the younger generation, to the younger generation, digital is as good as physical, if not better, right? And, yeah. and once you realize this, like, you know, when you look at Fortnite, Fortnite has sold billions of, it's a, it's a shooting game, billions of dollars of skins. And what skins are, are basically clothing for your character. There's no functional utility of it. Doesn't give you better gun, doesn't give you better weapons. It's purely just cosmetic. And that has sold billions of dollars. Similarly, like there's a Kim Kardashian game on the iPhone. One of my friends was the product manager for that. And, you know, they sold hundreds of millions of dollars of purses in game, right? This is digital purses. So, so that's the second thing. This kind of di- concept of digital is actually greater than or equal to in terms of value and showcase for, especially for the younger generation, but it'll catch up to everyone else now. And then the third piece of this is scarcity. And scarcity is just kind of an inbuilt human nature. If you have something that's scarce, it becomes more inherently more valuable. So if you take this kind of digital item, you add on the kind of collection mechanism, and then you add on scarcity. That's why NFTs are really powerful. And it's definitely something that is here to stay. It's kind of like, you know, why is art valuable? It's because all these same properties, right? So, there's only one. There's only one Mona Lisa. Exactly, right? Example. So, so then the question is: Is collecting a fad? Collecting is not a fad. Is Pokemon cards a fad? Yeah, Pokemon cards were kind of a fad, arguably, right? So the question is: Like, are NFTs as a category a fad? Definitely not. Is any specific game or any specific category of game a fad? Possibly, right? But the the idea of NFTs and the collection and scarcity and digital goods is not is not a fad at all. Like that's definitely going to be the future, right? Because I remember, and I think it was Matt Hall who created Crypto Kitties, correct? Crypto Kitties is actually created by the people who made NBA Top Shot. So they were oh also, right, 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 they, Dapper yeah, Labs. They right, were right, actually right. one of our earliest customers. Also, we've been having yeah. them for almost three years now. So, but I remember when Crypto Kitties came out, came out, everybody was like, Whoa, "What is happening here?" And then some sold for you know forty, fifty grand, and everybody thought it was crazy. Yeah. Then I don't know what's happened to Crypto Kitties since, but I remember it was kind of this initial pass at NFTs a few years ago, and then the world kind of came back down to earth a little bit and. People forgot about it. There are a lot of things that will not be around in 10 years, but there are also a lot of things that will be the future. And I think looking at that right now, it's really exciting because the people who talk about the internet, people who've seen the internet and computer uh, revolutions basically have said, hey, this is exactly the same thing and all the same patterns are playing out. And it's interesting, especially with things like NBA Top Shop, and I'm seeing some bits and pieces from other sports. Are you seeing a lot of investment and involvement w- from like professional athletes in trying to get into this, either through funding various different ventures or buying stuff themselves? Yeah, absolutely. We've had a ton of people reach out to us. Um, NBA Top Shot has been fantastic. The team, you know, we've again known them for like three years and powered them for a really long, like multiple years. And I can say nothing but the greatest things about how well they've executed and created a great product. And I think athletics and media, you know, we're talking to a lot of different sports team owners and things like that. And there's a, a huge set of applications and, and a lot of potential there. And I think athletes are very intelligent and smart and see that and want to get in on that. What is the most surprising thing you have seen that has been sold as an NFT? 
Um, or the most off the wall or thing where you're like, I cannot believe this actually happened. That's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think. I've heard crazy ideas. I've heard what what are some of the crazy ones? I feel like I don't get phased by much. So so I'm trying to think of like what would be. I've heard people selling. we have some big partnerships in pipeline, so I'm trying to I'm trying to make sure I don't say something that I shouldn't, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't be saying. But I've heard people like you know selling physical goods or like you know stuff that they own or like things like that as NFTs. Also, heard a lot of really interesting ideas around tokenizing experiences. So basically, let's let's say you're a musician and you want to sell. Yeah concert tickets and people can get front row seats for life for your concert by holding this nft and then if they don't want it anymore they can sell it to someone else that that's i thought that was really cool is somebody actually working on that yeah i think a couple of people are doing that we we've you know we've had multiple musicians reach out to us um we've had sports scenes owners musicians like some of like the, the the biggest brands in the world some of the top applications in the world like some of the apps that you have on your phone i can't say which one but like Literally, if you look at what are the top three apps on your phone, uh, like especially for kids, like those applications have reached out to us and said, hey, we want to do stuff in the NFT. So there's a lot of really exciting stuff happening. Right. How much money have you guys raised? How much money have we raised? Yeah. Um, we have to date uh, raised $15 million, but we have some big announcements coming soon. Right, right. <laughs> and so... Um... Kind of, you talked about like, you know, some of this stuff will, you know, rise and fall and go away, et cetera. But when you talk about like the future, what, when you talk to people in the crypto world and the blockchain world, and especially the Bitcoin world, it's like, it's the end of government as we know it. It's the kind of, you know, it's a really kind of, they're calling for a real revolution of everything and a kind of a usurping of virtually every institution because everything will be on the blockchain. It'll be, you know, accounted for, et cetera. Who needs a bank when we can just all put everything on the blockchain, et cetera? But what, practically speaking, where do you think you know the biggest opportunities are, or where do you see this kind of going next in terms of what you guys are working on and what you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Let me give an analogy here that I like to use with our team. I think I think it's pretty illustrative of how these these this technology affects the world. So let's think about the television, right? What happened? Television you know, was invented in the early 1900s. It's been about 100 years since the television was invented. What was a television in the beginning? It was one channel, it was black and white, and you had like your picture, right? Until like 2000, what was television? It was basically the same thing. It's like, okay, now we added more channels. Maybe you have 100 channels and you have color, but that's about it. Like nothing really changed, right? Because television was controlled by the cable companies, right? The cable companies are the ones who had access to improving television. They have a monopoly. There's no kind of reason why would they come and improve it, right? Then what happens? This thing called the internet comes along. And within five or 10 years, what, what is it? Television, right? Television blew up. It completely changed. It's Netflix. You can get on demand anytime you want a much more variety. It's free. You know, it's, it's Instagram, you know, it's Instagram TV. I can, I can, anybody can create content, not just like the production houses, all these things, you know, it's Snapchat stories. Like it's just completely new ways to consume content that weren't possible before a hundred years, nothing changed. And suddenly because they opened the platform for anyone to develop on, everything changed instantly. It's accessible. It's free. It's anybody can create content. It exploded in terms of usage. And you'll see the exact same thing happen with finance and banking. The banks have controlled the money and and the experience around that for like not hundred years, but thousands of years. It stayed literally the same, right? Like nothing has changed. And now you'll see this explosion where anyone can create content. Like this whole thing around decentralized finance, you see this, you see this massive explosion in innovation because you have three things. Anybody can create, you have the internet, 
And then you have this other thing, which is really unique to blockchain. And this is a little bit more of a technical concept, but basically there any blockchain product anybody can come and build on, right? So when you think about something like a Facebook or a Google, they have their data and they lock up their data. No one else can build on top of it. Facebook says, I'm going to make a little bit of the data available to some people who use Facebook platform. Yeah. But by the nature of blockchain, every company can read and write anybody else's company's data. And that's mind-blowing, right? Like imagine if anybody could build on the data used by Facebook, has, that Facebook has. It wouldn't be great for Facebook, but for everyone else, it would, it would massively push the ecosystem forward. So that, that's a really exciting thing. And I think you see a ton of innovation there and a ton of speed of iteration and development of, of new products. What slows this down? Because one of the things that, that has been brought up again and again, I think it will be more so as blockchain starts to kind of bleed into different industries is the kind of environmental aspect of this and just the computing power that is required to run the blockchain, whether it's, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever it may be, these different blockchains, it's a thing. It requires so much power. And in this era of climate change, it's going to become an issue. I mean, it's already becoming an issue. Yeah, um, I, I think a couple of things. I don't think that's going to be the main thing that slows blockchain down. I think when you think about that, there's a lot of energy required to do a lot of things, right? Like the internet, running the internet takes a lot of energy or, you know, running uh, the railroad system takes a lot of energy. There, there's a lot of things that take a lot of energy. And one of the interesting things that you get from this property of blockchain, and, and people are working on new solutions to, to do this, but it gives you the ability to not have one person in control of everything. And that and that's a, that's a cost you pay. And I think that's like, you know, when you think about the early computers, the early computers could do less than uh, like what your watch can, right? Way less, like a thousand X less than your watch can. And they were yeah. basically practically unusable for anything except like adding two numbers together that were slightly bigger than it would take on writing it out on hand. So now, you know, computers can tell you any piece of information that you want from anyone around the world instantly. And I think we're still in the very early days of blockchain and we'll see a big kind of improvement in all aspects of these. So I think one of the, one of the questions I get a lot is, but blockchain is so slow or it's this or X, Y, Z. And the point is that if you have a valuable ecosystem and a valuable product, like all the technology will be improved. So to me, I think that's like one of the most exciting things about blockchain that you have this open system that anyone around the world can improve. And also like, unlike the internet, right? If you helped the internet improve, you didn't make any money, right? The people who made HTTP or the people who made, uh, you know, TCPIP, the core protocols that run the internet, yeah. they didn't make money off of it. But now if you build a blockchain, you make a ton of money. So I think that's really good because it encourages the people to come and innovate in this space where they may not have done it otherwise. How do you make money? We make money the same way Amazon makes money. So they make money when they power Netflix. Netflix pays yeah. them to power their infrastructure. You know, we power companies around the world in every every kind of type of company from, you know, the smallest two-person startup to UNICEF to some of the largest banks in the world to companies like PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, so we, we power like a full spectrum and they pay us to power their infrastructure. So is that like a kind of a on a volume basis or like a per transaction basis? Yeah, or? we're a SaaS model. So it's basically the more com right. computing usage you use, the more you pay us. Got you. A AWS basically. Very similar to AWS in terms of cost structure. Right, right, right. What was growing up in Lubbock like? I've never been to Lubbock, Texas. Honestly, it was a blast. It was the most fun. I actually talk about this. I talk about this to like some of my friends and my sister and my co-founder you know, you see what growing up in California is like. It's so stressful. These kids in Palo Alto, you know, committing suicide because they don't get their SAT scores and it, they don't, they got a 1500 instead of 1600. And, and that's, that's crazy to me. I had such a good time. But growing up in Texas is awesome. I think there's this 
carefree childhood that you just get to have when you're in a small town. And there wasn't a lot of stress. Like, you know, 50% of my high school didn't go to college. There were metal detectors. There were like fights. There were like grates that would fall down from the ceiling. There was corporal punishment. So it was just like this very different life. You know, I came to California and my roommates in, in the NBA and, and then the guy next to him is like now his professor at MIT and, and his roommate is has a, he lives next door to the girl in Laguna Beach and has an elevator in his house. So it was just like a very different, I had a very different like childhood growing up, but it was so fun. I wouldn't trade it for the world. And it was very, way less stressful than I think most people's childhoods. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you went from that little town to Stanford, was there a moment where you're like, mm, I don't know if I'm gonna make it here, or like I'm an imposter, or you know, because that feels quite intimidating, yeah. especially coming from a small place. You know what? I, I talk about this a lot. I don't think I've actually said this on a podcast before, but uh, man, you're getting you're getting a lot of the a lot of the, <laughs> the exclusives here. Um, I think the best thing you can do to have to feel confidence around yourself is growing up in a small town. Because I, for 18 years of my life, I got to be the big fish in the small pond. I was like you know, we're a small town. I got to be the best at athletics, the best at music, the best at academics, student council president. Like, and not only that, we were kind of some of the best in the state and the best in the country, like the top three kids at, the, at, at my high school. And that wasn't possible. Like I couldn't do that in Palo Alto and I couldn't be the best at everything, right? But just 18 years of getting that drilled into your head that whatever you do, you can be great at. You know, I, I saw a lot of people come to Stanford and they had been the best at their one thing. And then they, you know, then the world's expert, like one girl in my dorm was like, like on the Olympics, uh, alternate for gymnastics. Another, it was just like, you come there and then everyone's confidence gets like, not everyone, but some people's confidence gets shattered. I was like, whatever, yeah. you know, I can, I can do it. Like I, I've been great. Granted, my circle of greatness was like tiny and I didn't know what the world outside <laughs> of me, but I still had this like, you know, this almost ultra naive belief in myself that no matter what I did, I, I could figure it out. Lastly, what was your worst day of work? Great question. Um, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to go with like a similar answer to Mark Andreessen's. I don't think we've had like a worst day of work because I think a couple things. It's always been a blast, like through all the ups and downs. Like, let me make sure it's 100% clear. I don't mean everything was successful. Most of the things we tried were big failures and we messed up so many things. Yeah. I have made decisions that have single-handedly lost our company half a million dollars because I didn't listen to anyone's advice. Everyone told me not to do it. I did it. I was like, oh, I'm just going to be nice in this negotiation. And turns out that was the wrong thing to do and people weren't nice. So anyway, th the point is like, we've had so many things that we messed up on, but it was always a blast. And every single, I have this philosophy in life that every single thing I look back on that I was like, wow, that was the worst thing to ever happen to me. 
always a look back. There's a short-term benefit. In the long term, I always look back. I'm like, wow, that was the single best deal, that I, th- th- best thing that ever happened to me. Um, and I'm so grateful because otherwise I wouldn't be the person who I am today, right? And I, and I think, and I, I totally mean this. Like I was literally just talking to my co-founder about this the other day. Uh, we had this one deal like three years ago that we like really wanted. I had flown out to, it was this massive deal with this like, uh, it was actually with Bloomberg. We're, we're trying to sign this massive deal with them. And I, I flew out to New York multiple times to get this deal. And like, we like didn't get it. And I was crushed. I was like, man, like, and it was so frustrating because we knew we were the better product. We were the better company. Like it was not even close. They shouldn't have gone with anyone but us. And the interesting thing was they went with this other company who had no product, no technology, nothing. But the guy was like a good, you know, business person. He wore a suit and had a pitch deck. And I was this kid. I think I showed up in a tank top. I don't think I showed up in a tank top. But like I normally show up to things in tank tops. And I was just crushed that we didn't get this deal. I was like, man, I spent so much. And it was so frustrating to me. I look back on that. That was in the very early days of Alchemy. We were trying to figure out which direction we would go the business in. That, if we had gotten that deal, the company wouldn't be one-tenth of where we are today. Not even one-hundredth of where we are today uh, because it would have put the company on a different trajectory and that business that we were going to go into wasn't a good business, right? And I look back, I'm like, wow, like everything works out for the best. And I think more than that, we will make everything work out for the best because when, when you succeed, people tend to party. And when you, when you fail, people tend to ponder. And I think we look back on that every decision or every tough time that we've had and and, and I think it made us stronger and it made us, it made us a better company and it made me a better person. And I think the last thing I'll say to this is I've talked to a lot of founders, you know, we're talking to the Peloton founder, a bunch of other founders who've built really successful companies. And one of the things that unanimously every single person says is, man, those early days when there's just 20 of us or 10 of us in a room and we were so stressed and we didn't know we were pulling all-nighters, we didn't know if we'd live or die. Those are the best times, like really enjoy this. And I think, you know, we have gone above and beyond. Joe and I have poured everything we have into making sure this is an awesome culture. And my friends who see my Instagram story, they always say like, do you guys do any work that like literally looks like you're hanging out all the time? And we are, we, we work all the time. But we also have such a blast. We have been so blessed to be around the most incredible team, the most incredible investors. And it really, you know, we always say alchemy family, it feels like a family and that's kind of the culture we want to have. And for me, I get to go to work and build something that brings this new technology to every person on the planet. And, you know, we're, we're on our way there. We're in like tens, a hundred plus million people use, use what we do. And I think that if I get to do that with people I love, there's no greater benefit and no greater honor. And I think that even the toughest days are just all part of the progress. And, and it's a blast. And I'm truly grateful to get to do what I do. And then I forgot to ask. So do you have any kind of like um, investors... Because I know a lot of people like, was it Depp or they, they have like Will Smith and a few other kind of yeah. famous folks. Do you guys have anybody Is it or is it your kind of your typical kind of Silicon Valley venture capital firm yeah. investor? No, we have, we have like a who's who of, <laughs> of everyone. You know, we have it across from institutions to like, you know, Stanford University, Coinbase, like some of the biggest names of crypto. In terms of angels, you know, we have the chairman of board of Google, the founder of Yahoo, the founder of PayPal, the founder of LinkedIn, the CEO of New York Stock Exchange, like Charles Schwab, like the actual guy himself, right? He was, we lived in the same dorm when we were at Stanford. He he lived there the very first year that I was there, right? He's like 50 years older than me. Um, and then I lived there much later. Right. But super cool guy. We've been so fortunate. And on the entertainment side, we have a whole host of entertainment. A lot of the biggest names that you've, you've, you've heard of, you can check it out on our website, uh, alchemyapi.io. But yeah, we, we have like, we have a lot. And I think more importantly, what we really selected for was we've been very fortunate. We've never gone out to do a fundraise. It's always been inbound. And we just, we want to surround ourselves with great people. And I think that the relationship that we've been so fortunate and so blessed to have with all these like incredible people is 
is like a very mentor mentor relationship, right? We just wanted to learn from the most, the best, the smartest, most interesting people in the world, and and they have been insanely gracious with their time. Like these people are multi billionaires; they don't have to spend time with like kids like me and Joe, right? But they coach us, they mentor us, um, and they're super excited about about alchemy. So cannot say how grateful we are to be surrounded by such incredible investors. Cool. Well, look, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Um, I can leave you to, um, to more important matters. <laughs> it was a blast. <laughs> Got to recount, recount the Lubbock days. All right. That was Nikhil. I hope you guys enjoyed that. And now let us go straight into my conversation with Raj Chowdhury. Here he is. The reason I want to have you on is because out here on the West Coast, everybody's all of a sudden, um, and uh, you know, it's varying degrees around the world. People are talking about, okay, you know, vaccines are rolling out, rates are generally falling, although they're starting to spike in some places again. But people are starting to think about the return to work. And I was listening to a talk that Mark Andreessen gave this week, and he was saying they pulled two hundred companies, two hundred portfolio companies, and ninety-two percent will be either doing fully remote or a hybrid, you know, kind of part home, part in office. And this kind of jibes with a lot of what other people are saying. Well, you know, Facebook is talking about having starting to have people back uh, in May. And I think Uber's office opened this week. And so it just got me to thinking, okay, so what does this look like? So two questions. One, do you think the world has changed in terms of work and where people work in terms of, you know, remote, hybrid? home, whatever it may be in the office. And then we can get to the question of, you know, what are the best ways to go about this? Because obviously, it's a bit, we, we just went through this massive year long experiment. And now we're coming out of it. And people are trying to apply some of what they learned. And obviously, some of it's going to work and some of it doesn't. Yeah, sure. Uh, so thanks for having me, Danny, first. And uh, my name is Raj Chaudhary. I'm a professor at the Harvard Business School. And I've been studying remote work for many years, uh, many years, even prior to the pandemic. So the first thing I would say is I've heard many people use the phrase uh, back to work, and I take little objection with it. People have been working in the past year. <laughs> in many cases, they've been overworked in the past one year. So I think people are really thinking about back to office. And I don't think that all cubicle model of 2019 will ever return. I think the genie is out of the bottle. People have experienced the benefits of remote work. So what I've been urging CEOs and CHROs and companies to think about is how do we combine the best of both worlds? How do we mm. take the best of the office environment and combine it with the best features of remote work to design really a, a very efficient form of hybrid remote work? I think that is what most companies should aspire for. That is where the world will be. And so... What does that look like? Because I've read a lot about this idea that, oh, yeah, so there is going to be some some element of remote work, but also this idea that hybrid, whatever that is, which I presume means, you know, maybe some days in the office, one week in, one week out, whatever it may be. A lot of people are saying, you know, that is kind of the worst of both worlds. Do you agree? So here are my thoughts. So uh, first of all, I think it's it's a good time to remind all of us, uh, but especially the top man managers of every company, why uh, companies and organizations should embrace remote work. And the short answer is for individuals, they're craving for flexibility. They're craving for flexibility over their time, about where they want to live. So I've been studying this form of remote work, which I call work from anywhere. 
which lets you or allows employees to relocate to smaller towns or a different part of the country or a different part of the world, be closer to family, have lower cost of living. So that is the flexibility that employees are craving. It's great for organizations too, because now with work from anywhere, you can hire anywhere. It's mm. a more inclusive workspace, and I can talk, talk about that in more detail. It, of course, saves real estate costs and utilities costs. So I think there's a great business case why work from anywhere and other forms of remote work are good for companies and good for employees. Now, about what is the form of hybrid I like, hmm. uh, this is what I'll say. I think the form of hybrid I, I like is one which is uniform. Uh, what I mean by that is it doesn't create two classes of citizens, the office workers and the remote workers. And I'll give you one specific example of that. So I've been working with TCS, which is a giant tech company with you know, over 500,000 employees. Yeah, Tata Consulting Services, yeah. That's correct. So last year, what they decided to do was move to a model which they called 2525, which means that only 25% of any employee's total time at work would be in the office. So you would be 75% remote, 25% in the office. But here's the real elegance of the model. What that 25% in office is will not be decided by the company or even by the worker. It would be decided by the team. So if you and I are on the same team, Danny, we would be in the office on the same days. It's not that I would miss you. You know, It's not like I'll be working Monday, Tuesday, and then yeah. you would come Thursday, Friday. And for some teams, it could be two days a week. For some teams, it could be one week a month. And for some teams, it could be a few weeks in February, followed by a few weeks in October. So each team decides. And then the whole team shows up to have that social interaction, which is critical. Right. But that's an interesting thing you bring up around inclusivity, because it does feel like you can kind of quickly bifurcate between like an A team and a B team in office at home. And it also would depend, I would guess, on where you are in your career. Because if you're young and you're kind of trying to climb the greasy pole, so to speak, FaceTime really matters. You want to kind of show your boss you're doing well, all of that stuff. Is that kind of that TCS model you talked about? Is that perhaps the most elegant way to get around that where everybody's on the same, you know, playing on the same field? So I would like to highlight two or three things. The first is this, these periods of temporary co-location where the entire team comes together. Because one thing that you cannot do still uh, remote is dine or, you know, just hang out as a team. So that's, that's social interaction is very uh, important. But even throughout the entire year when you are remote, it's very important to think about mentorship and onboarding and experiential learning to all happen remotely. And here I've ran experiments on how to make it happen. It works very elegantly. And actually, there are some benefits of virtual social interactions compared to the in-office interactions that I'm happy to talk about in more detail. Like what? Yeah, because I, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I talked to Twitter and they were one of the first people to close their office. I was talking to the head of HR and they're like, oh yeah, we've just started doing these um, Zoom happy hours. And now that's kind of passe. But at the time, everybody's like, oh my goodness, Zoom happy hour. That's so bizarre. And obviously we've seen the limitations of that. But so what what specific kind of things are you talking about that could kind of recreate you know, those drinks after work or whatever it may be? 
So it's actually less about the Zoom aspect of it. It's it's more about who you get to meet. So this is this is the reality. When we were all working in an office, we had these quote unquote water cooler conversations. Mm. But if people really think about who those conversations were with, it was typically with a few people on the same floor of your office. It was rarely with people three floors above or below. It was rarely with people in different locations. And it was rarely between hierarchies. So the CEO almost never had these water cooler conversations with interns. But in the, re- in the remote world, Zoom is just a technology. It's about how do we engineer these random interactions that cut across hierarchy, cut across location. So if it's a Zoom happy hour where the same seven people are joining, that's not as effective. But if there's someone in the organization who's saying, we are going to schedule truly random interactions, bringing R&D and marketing together, bringing the top managers with the guys who joined yesterday together. And we're going to plan that, we're going to schedule that, and we'll enforce that people join these sessions. Then you can create a, a richer set of social interactions than what you would have in a physical office. I mean, have you had companies that are actually doing that? Because that just you describing that sounds awkward. Be like, Hey, uh, in 10 minutes, you have your your 10-minute kind of meetup with person X at the company you've never heard of before. Go be social <laughs> you know, over the computer. No, so I've actually run an experiment with a very large investment bank last summer, and it worked beautifully. So we randomly created these interactions, and our results show that the folks, the junior folks, the, actually the new employees who had these interactions with senior managers had better performance week by week. And here, I think the crux of making this successful lies on training the senior people because they need to go and break the ice. They need to start the meaningful conversation and they need to make it meaningful in a way that people want to do this week on week, month on month. Right. And that feels like that's a key, right, is the senior people and getting them because if if you're like, okay, we're going all remote, but the CEOs, you know, the C-suite, whatever, they're going to be in the office. That would seem to kind of undercut the whole enterprise. That's a recipe for disaster because if the CEO or the C-suite is in office, then the entire middle management would show up in office to get FaceTime and the whole model will will absolutely uh, completely disintegrate. And that's why I love the TCS 25% because it's 25% for everyone from from the CEO down bottom. There are no exceptions. And then each team decides when that 25% in office is. And you're a believer that this this past year has created a fundamental change that we won't go back to the way it was. Absolutely. I think, I, I think for, for two reasons. Employees are craving for this flexibility for over a decade. So when I studied the U.S. Patent Office back in 2015-16, they had already implemented work from anywhere for three years. They had done it in 2012. And I had interviewed, uh, not only I had quantitatively measured the performance of employees before and after, and I found there were productivity gains. I had interviewed a whole sample of employees, and the stories were just heartwarming. So for women, this was a way to have continuity in their careers without relocating. Uh, So many women have lost out on promotion opportunities in the past because they are in a dual career situation. And even if they get a promotion, the spouse doesn't want to move to London, for instance. So now work from anywhere alleviates that pain. So there's a lot of latent demand for flexibility and remote work and work from anywhere. 
And the reality is that companies that refuse to accept that, that latent demand for flexibility, will just lose talent. And companies that implement this new remote work uh, world will just gain talent. It's going to be a talent magnet versus losing talent argument. Well, that's what's really interesting as you as you look at all these different companies. Again, going back to where we started, thinking about, all right, kind of the pandemic, you can see the end in the on the horizon. How do we set this up? Because it does feel like all of a sudden this is a criteria. This is something that people will look at when they comparing, do I go to Facebook or do I go to Google or do I go to Airbnb or whatever? Can I work at home becomes a part of that conversation. Yeah, and it's not only can I work at home, can I work from anywhere? So the folks who have relocated from Silicon Valley to Atlanta or Tulsa, they're not going to go back uh, if their company post-pandemic says come back. They'll just find a different employer. That's the reality. Right. In this new world, I mean, and I can say that I'm speaking from experience. I mean, both my myself and my wife have been working at home for a year. It's this idea of like, you know, there's no clear division between work, quote unquote, and home. And so you can actually end up working more. Have you looked at any ways to kind of create a healthier work-life balance? Because as you say, a lot of the companies are like, ooh, people are being more productive and sometimes that means they're just more productive. Sometimes that means they're just working more hours. Yeah, so two or three things I would say. The first thing is that, you know, we have experienced collective Zoom fatigue. And it's not because of Zoom's fault. It's just because of our meeting culture, that we meet up for the smallest thing. So the companies that are doing great in the remote world are companies that have embraced asynchronous work, where you can use a Slack channel or a Doist channel or a Google Doc to work together without jumping on a Zoom call for everything. And so you only jump in on a Zoom call for social interactions, to check in on each other, or to take really, really urgent decisions on things that you've debated for a long time on a Slack channel. So I think embracing asynchronous would really help us. The second thing I would say, Danny, is, you know, I'm a big advocate for work from anywhere, but I, I totally understand some people don't want to work from home. And the examples I've studied, in many cases, an individual might have relocated from California to Tulsa, but that person might have found a co-working space to go and work at. And post-pandemic, I think many people would do that. Uh, there's a really interesting model where uh, there's a company which is now trying to find an Airbnb model for vacant office space in people's homes. Mm. So you know, if you don't like working in your home, it might be a home office in your neighborhood that you go and work in, or you might find pods that are on, on rent. So I think there are lots of solutions that are going to come out. Uh, the most important thing is to figure out what sets of processes would make you productive without burning out and keep you socially active in the organization. Right. And that, that, but that embrace of asynchronous work, that feels like that piece has yet to happen. And I'm speaking again, and this is anecdotally, but my wife, she's a lawyer for a tech company. She's on Zoom eight hours a day. It's I've never seen anything like it. It's just Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting. And while she likes not having to commute, in a way, it's kind of worse in, the, in terms of the way her day is kind of laid out because it's just, um, it's easy to set up a Zoom meeting and people just kind of, so that's the default. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that's completely unsustainable. So I think uh, I've seen many companies embrace asynchronous work. 
And it's actually not even a company. All it takes is a team leader to say that, you know, I'm going to try this out. So we're going to set up a team Slack channel or a team Doist channel or whatever form of asynchronous communication tool you want to use. Maybe it's as simple as a shared Google Doc. And we are going to brainstorm ideas till we the ideas are really mature. And then we come together on a quick Zoom call to take a decision. And I'll give you one example of a company that I'm working with. They actually have this informal rule that if you come to a Zoom call with a new idea that you have not mentioned in the Slack channel, that idea gets tossed out. Mm. Because the logic is, if you are on Zoom, you are only thinking in that moment. But if you're working on a Slack channel or a Doist channel, you are doing much more deep work. You can reflect for, for a long period of time on, on what people have said. And so if you're coming to a meeting with a new idea, no one has had that chance to do the deep work. So that idea gets tossed out. So I feel a lot of this is changing habits of people. But once again, it starts at the top. So if the CEO says, I'm going to start my Slack channel, and that's going to be the way we communicate in the C-suite, that behavior will percolate down there. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Have you quantified what difference this makes potentially for companies, just in terms of whether it's, again, you're paying for less real estate, uh, certainly in, in out here in Silicon Valley, there's the whole free food, you know, free buses, all of that stuff, all of that has gone away, at least for right now. Just like, is there like dollars and cents that you can put around any of this? So I've calculated pretty precise productivity gains for the U.S. Patent Office. So there. I looked at this transition from office to work from home and then work from home to work from anywhere. Mm -hmm. And in both of these transitions, I found productivity went up. And it was very measurable because the productivity measured there is number of patent files examined by the examiner every week. Mm. Uh, so productivity went up by 4.4%, for instance, when the examiners moved from work from home to work from anywhere. We estimated real estate savings cost in the millions. We estimated carbon footprint uh, reductions, which were pretty significant. But to me, the biggest benefit is not productivity. Productivity is a big deal. Real estate is a big deal. But the two biggest benefits that companies accrue are hiring. Now you can hire globally. You can hire a bunch of programmers in Kenya without opening an office there. You can hire programmers in Bangladesh without opening an office there. And also the second big benefit is inclusion. This creates a more gender-friendly workspace because now women can navigate dual careers much better. So to me, from the point of inclusion and hiring, work from anywhere is a great, great uh, mechanism to implement. Yeah, I was talking to a startup CEO and he's like, he gave up his office. He's like, and I'm never going to have an office again because now I have a superpower in that if I find a really, really great developer in whatever... Pensacola, Florida, and I'm here in Silicon Valley, I don't have to pay for them to come out here, pay them twice what it costs for them to stay there and all of that stuff because the salaries are so high here. And basically, he, in terms of talent, if he finds the best people, he can just let them stay where they are and that's it, which is a really just kind of fascinating shift. And um, the other question I had, though, is how do you plan an office if you're a company? If you're saying, okay, we're hybrid or say this 25% model, what does the office look like? What is the capacity, like the practicalities of, okay, we're going to have 75% less 
bodies in the building at any one given time do we just downsize by 75 percent, or or the collaboration spaces differently does it become kind of like a corporate cafe where people hang out and kind of talk and meet and work or what does that look like yeah so two things i think the first thing is we definitely don't need the number of cubicles we had in 2019 so if you take out all the cubicles you can reimagine the purpose of the office i feel the office really is going to become the location where people socialize. They're going to do most of their work remotely. They're going to do all their deep work remotely. And they're going to come to the office to socialize, to hang out together, to wine and dine. Because think about all the disruptions we had with people walking into our offices constantly and our cubicles constantly. Mm. Uh, so you cannot do deep work in an office. It's just not possible. So I think with the cubicles gone, now you can have collaboration spaces. Now you can have social spaces. You could set up an office band room. You can set up an office pool table. And actually, Dropbox is doing a great uh, job. They are designing these Dropbox collaboration studios. And the one thing is no one is going to have a fixed cubicle. It's all going to be based on hot desking. Uh, so I think the office will be reimagined. But the other thing is, I don't think it has to be downsized. It depends on where the company is, is in its growth cycle. Because the other way to think about it is now you can grow uh, your number of employees, your headcount, without scaling up any more real estate. So for some companies, there might be some downsizing. For some companies, it'll be avoiding future real estate ac acquisition. And then just lastly, so you say you've been studying this for a long time. What's a long time? So I bumped into work from anywhere, I want to say in 2015. And then I, I studied the U.S. Patent Office right after that, 2016. Then I got to know these companies like GitLab uh, that had no offices, these all remote organizations, and I studied them in detail. They became my good friends. So this phenomenon has been going on for a while. Uh, the pandemic has just exposed many more companies and CEOs to this phenomenon. Well, that was, that was what I was going to say. I mean, could you have imagined, I mean, because, you know, a lot of people say in various different industries, the pandemic has accelerated you know, what we thought might happen in five to 10 years, it's happened in five to six months. Is that basically what you're seeing here? That's right. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I think the multiplier effects of this phenomena will play out for at least 10 years. So I'll just give you one more thought. So in my past research, I've looked at migration and the problem of brain drain hmm. from emerging markets to the West, from smaller towns in the West to the larger cities in the West. And now work from anywhere really is a way to reverse the brain drain. So I've been working with this organization in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which for the past three years has attracted remote workers from the coastal cities to Tulsa. And so now this experiment is being replicated across several smaller towns in Arkansas, in Kansas, in Arizona. And I could imagine that model could equally work well in Britain, in any country of the world. So the small towns have been bleeding talent. This is a great way for them to get some talent back. This may be outside your bailiwick, but I was just thinking, you know, we've written a lot about this kind of mass urbanization that's happened over the past, you know, few decades. Do you have a sense of whether this will move the needle on that? Like, you know, because a city like London, whatever, it's 8 million people, San Francisco, it's 800,000. People will leave, people have left. That's absolutely certain. But do you think there will be a kind of a continued kind of outflow of people or is it kind of more at the margins? I think once again, it's a fascinating question and you know, we'll, t we'll need years to study this. But I think mm. what's going to happen is 
people will self-select into the environments that suit them best. So there are folks who love New York and San Francisco and London, and they will keep coming to these cities. And there are folks who love the countryside and smaller towns for multiple reasons. Maybe their family is there. Maybe it's easier to raise kids and afford childcare in a cheaper location. They're going to select those locations. So I don't see it, it as a loss for big cities. I see it as a win-win for small cities, small towns and large cities. Right. Well, we shall see. It'll be an interesting, it's kind of this real world experiment that was forced upon us. And now it's uh, the kind of the next experiment. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Mikhail. I want to thank Raj for taking the time to talk this week. Just really, really, really interesting times. I feel like COVID runs as a theme through kind of all of this in one way or the other. And we're only three months into 2021. But anyhow, I hope you guys enjoyed those discussions. I feel like I learned a lot. I still feel like I have more to learn. We might have some more folks from the NFT kind of world on the show because I think it's just a really interesting thing that's happening. It's There's definitely a bubble going on. But anyway, I think there is, there is a there there somewhere. I'll be writing about that this weekend, so if you want to read more about that, check out the paper. Go online at thetimes.co.uk. You can also find me on the Twitters, at Danny Fortson. Email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. With any questions, concerns, even a compliment if you want. But anyhow, thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.